within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickshiller.com. Just because you see what he shows. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and my guest this week on the podcast is a gentleman from Australia named Jamin Fraser. Jamin's the founder of The Insecurity Project, and he specializes in helping entrepreneurs, leaders, and business owners eradicate insecurity so they can show up to life unhindered by doubt, fear, and self-limiting beliefs. He's widely recognized as one of Australia's best life coaches and a leading voice globally on the subject of personal insecurity. Jamin was recently voted the best personal development coach in Eastern Australia, and for you, Listeners at home, one of the reasons I wanted to have Jamin on here, not only in the the subject that he talks about, but if you listen to what he specializes in, he specializes in helping entrepreneurs, leaders and business owners eradicate insecurity, you know, so they can show up to life unhindered by doubt, fear and self-limiting beliefs. And we all seem to have this idea that the entrepreneurs and the leaders and the people who are really rocking it in the world uh, have got it going on and you know I just hope what a lot of you know some of what people get out of this podcast with Jamin is that everybody has it and so don't feel alone if you do but you know uh, Jamin's work is his, you know his life's work is represented in his groundbreaking model around the process for eradicating insecurity from your life his convictions not that only is insecurity a solvable problem it's our most important adult work to free ourselves from the limiting beliefs of our childhood. So, uh, yeah, I can really resonate with that, and I'm pretty sure you guys will too, and I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Jamin as much as I did. So here is Jamin Fraser. Jamin Fraser, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, no worries at all. You can uh, you can thank your daughter. I guess your daughter is the horse girl who uh, she emailed me. She must listen to the podcast, and she emailed me a while ago, and she said, "You know, my dad would be a good really good uh, uh, guest on the podcast." And I get a lot of those emails, like, "My best friend would be a really good," or "My so and so," you know. And I I rarely ever get people on the podcast from a recommendation like that. But I looked you up. I'm like, "Wow, wow you are." you got the fascinating stuff going on. Um, thanks for joining us. Well, look, thanks for going down that rabbit hole. That's uh, uh, yeah, amazing that you followed the link and here we are. Oh, don't worry about me. <laughs> I'm, I'm down rabbit holes. Uh, yeah, like in the last four podcasts, let's, let's say in the last three podcasts, I've had a world champion rodeo cowboy. I've had a, a mystic poet who, who downloads from the wherever uh, mystic poetry and I've had a lady from Sweden who um, is an animal communicator that actually taps into the consciousness of animals. She's not an animal communicator to where she gets pictures from them or voices or whatever. She actually becomes them. She experiences the reality that they're in. So yeah, I'm down some rabbit holes. So you'll be, you'll be fine. You're in good <laughs> well, hands. 
So tell me, you are a personal development coach. Do you have a like a specialty? You like in the C suite, or what? Uh, what sort of people do you usually help? Yeah, so I get invited into the C suite all the time, but they're not my people. Um, my people are are entrepreneurs. They're small business owners. Um, they're people trying to bring something out of their own essence to the world. They're trying to solve a unique problem. Um, so they, they, they've started a business because they think they can do something better than they've seen someone else do. They, they see a solution, and so they're bringing themselves to the game. Um, they're people, though, that while they've developed some business ideas and learn about money and uh, the structure of running a business, they've not often done much personal development work, or they may have done it you know, a long time ago, and, and now it's the thing in the way. So uh, I, I specialise in helping those kind of people remove insecurity from their life. Um, my business is called The Insecurity Project. I'm convinced it's a solvable problem and, and probably the most important problem for ambitious adults to solve. So, yeah, midlifers, ambitious to do good work in the world, hindered by uh, hidden or unresolved insecurity. That's, they're my people. That's my sweet spot. Wow, that is the sweet spot. It's funny, I'm currently listening to an audio book called Healing the Shame That Binds You. And... Yeah, it's a lot about what you're talking about there, and it's and it's interesting. We had a little chat before you came on the before we started recording the podcast, and I said that uh, you're probably not a horse guy, and you said no, I'm not. And I said, well, it doesn't matter because you know usually on the podcast we talk about lots of personal development stuff that say in the like in the horse world, the horse we we encounter a problem with horses or. Usually for a long time, we don't encounter problems. You can get a certain way. You can get a certain distance. You can achieve a certain amount, and then you can't achieve anymore, and it's not a, it becomes not a horse problem. It becomes all the stuff inside us, and it's interesting that you have hit on insecurity as the, like the, the big thing I, I want to I really want to get into that but let's I want to back up a bit and figure out how did you get to be doing this because that once I get you talking about the security <laughs> thing I'm going to ask you a million questions and we'll be here forever so let's let's back up how do you you know you don't you don't go to school and say uh put your hand up and say excuse me teacher I want to be a personal development coach uh specializing in insecurity with uh, middle-aged entrepreneurs how does one end up <laughs> with your job title uh, okay, so I suppose the the first key piece of the puzzle was that I was a church pastor. Uh, I got given the leadership of the church that I grew up in when I was twenty three, and prior to that, I was the youth pastor. So, um, what church? What I, church is that? So it was called Liberty Christian Fellowship. So a, a Pentecostal, uh, independent, you know, country church, um, the church of about a hundred, hundred and twenty people. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, the church that I'd grown up in, the church that my, my parents belonged to. Uh, and so when I finished school, I I dreamed of joining the army. I was going to do mechanical or civil engineering in ADFA. That was my career choice, and I was confident that that was the right decision. And then through a series of unfortunate events, uh, I got done for drugs on my final entrance exam. Um, which I, I was straighty 180, never touched any substance and uh, just at a mate's 18th birthday party the week before my final test. I arrived there late, 
mate, I'm starving. What do you got for me? Oh, Fraser got just the thing and got handed a plate of hash cookies. And so I was hoeing into these delicious treats, unaware of the uh, unintended implications. And there, so yeah, got it hey, well, in my urine, in my blood. Let's, and- not, <laughs> let's not skip over that because if you've never ingested any substances at all and then you don't have a bite of a cookie, you you chat down into him. What happened then? <laughs> well, well, look, I was high on life. It was an incredible time. It was such a great vibe that night. So I didn't really notice, to be honest. Um, really? Maybe I didn't have. A, yeah, really, I didn't. I didn't go. Oh my goodness, I'm stoned. I I really didn't notice what had happened. So I don't really understand how that happened, but. Yeah, I, I, at the time, I was unaware that I was eating hash cookies. Okay. It just showed I, up in my blood. <laughs> I, want, I want to stay here because this is interesting. There's a certain state that the THC and those things puts you in, which I think you can get there yourself without that. <laughs> I you might, I think you might be the first person I've ever talked to who was as was already high, as high as you can get, get and you couldn't get any higher so it didn't affect you. That's, that's a good explanation. I think that may have been what happened. <laughs> really? That's, that's, that is, that's a great story. I'm glad you didn't skip over that bit. So you were going to join the army um, yeah, and it was your yeah. final entrance exam. Yeah. So... Why? Why the engineering thing? What did you? Did your mind always work well, that way? Yeah, and I think it does. It took me a while. Like when that that path closed, and I was devastated by that, and and, and my life took a very different path. It took me uh, maybe fifteen years to rethink the engineering. Why engineering? What was it about that? And and now I think, yeah, of course. Like I am so pragmatic. I love structure. When it comes mm. to insecurity, I'm all about the structure of the thing. How does this work? What are the smallest moving parts? How do we pull it apart and examine it and optimize? So everything in my brain, especially when it comes to personal development, is so oriented around engineering. So, um, yeah, it was just intuitively that was how I saw the word. I, I loved how things worked and so was led towards engineering, loved physics and um, you know science at school, loved maths. Uh, so... Yeah, but I, I missed that for 15 years. I, I couldn't join the dots until I realised how much structure there was to the work that I do now and realised, oh, it's the same. Yeah, this is this is why I loved engineering back then. I still love it. You know, it's funny. I've just um, written a book. I've just published my first book, and it's called The Principles of Training, and it's it's about like it start, like on the back of the book there's a quote from a, a, a early 20th century efficiency expert named Harrington Emerson, and it says, as to methods, there may be a million or more, but principles are few. The man who grasps principles can successfully select his own methods. The man who tries methods, ignoring principles, is sure to have trouble. And the opening of the book, the introduction of the book, starts out, I think the first first, uh, sentence says, I've always been in my head. And I've always been thinking about things and quantifying things and, and whatever. And, it, and I talk about how it didn't really help me in certain parts of life. But then when I got to, came to America and was training horses and whatever, I could see patterns in 
like different techniques, like you know, have someone show you a technique and someone show you a different technique for something totally different, but I could kind of join the dots and go, hang on, really underneath when you strip them down to their underwear, they're, they're the same thing. And it's just that my, my mind sort of recognised patterns like that. And it sounds like, I don't know if your mind works similarly to mine as in always being in your head, but it looks like you, like that recognising those patterns might have been a, a strong suit of yours. Well, uh, it, it does. I'm on the lookout for patterns and and process and principles, absolutely. And I think I'm, I'm a frameworks kind of guy. Like I, I think you, you can't think a new thought about a subject until you've got a new framework to hang that new thought on. So, um, so much about how I think about my own growth and helping others is to understand the logic and the structure, the the, the process, the principle, the framework, and and from there you can develop a whole line of thinking that unlocks a, a new way of of getting results. So yeah, very similar by the sound of things. Right. So let, yeah, let's not get too far into your your current line of work. So okay. So we didn't go in the army because we went to the party. We had the things that were supposed to change us, and it didn't change us because we were already high on life. Uh, what happened then? Where did where did you go from there? Well, I came home with my tail between my legs and thought oh, that was yeah a real uh, a real pain. But then um, you know I'd I'd been I'd grown up in the church. It was meaningful to me, but I never considered that it was uh, that meaningful until after school I went to a youth camp and and felt like to the best of my ex- way of explaining it that I had an experience with God that uh, felt like a destiny or a calling or a, a sense of enlightenment around this feels like my path I feel like what I'm supposed to do with my life is help people in their spiritual journey and so uh, that was very meaningful and one of the most real experiences of my life um, and yeah, you know, when I had it, then um, processing it now, I, I think about it slightly differently. But nevertheless, I embarked on some study. Went, I went and signed up to Bible college. Thought I've got to go learn how to uh, how to be uh, a pastor, a minister. I need to do a degree in theology, and so that was the next uh, two or three years of my life before being given the leadership role of the of the youth group that I had in church, uh, and then eventually. When I finished my degree, um, taking over the church itself. Can you explain what that? Let's call it a spiritual awakening, whatever you want to call it. What was that experience like for you? Because I've had something like that. I know lots of people have had things like that, and I think they're all a bit different. But how did it occur to you? Hmm. Uh. Just that nothing else made sense. Nothing else. I I I just remember feeling like uh, this is all that I want. This is the this is the most real thing, the most important thing, and everything else faded away. Just to go, okay, I, I see who I am. I see what I'm supposed to do. I see what is real, and and now I, I know myself and I know my path. So um, yeah, a, a very important experience in the context of my life and. And it just gave me such a high level of certainty and wholeheartedness from that point to go, okay, well, um, I'm not guessing or hoping or, or trying this. This is this is me. This is where I fit. This is what I'm supposed to do. So all in. Uh, and that's, that's another thing about how I, I work. I, I kind of only work when I could be wholehearted. If I can't be wholehearted about something, I, 
I just am not in. The moment something doesn't make sense to me and I can't see it working, I'm out like straight away. I change very quickly. Uh, so that that experience gave me an access of wholeheartedness that meant great, everything I've got, single focus, this is my life, this is what I'm going to go do. It sounds to me, you know, when you have this experience and when we have these experiences, at least for me, I, I know a lot of people talk about too, like the veil is lifted and you see things differently. But it sounds like, well, for me especially, it was I saw myself differently. Like um, I wasn't who I thought I was, but it sounds like it just confirmed that you already knew who you were. It wasn't like you're like, oh, my goodness, that's different. It's, it was. It sounds like to me it was like a big old, yes, that's who you are. Like It doesn't sound like you were surprised at all. No, I think you're right. I think that's a, a really accurate way of understanding it. It was like, yeah, okay, um, this is who I am. And it wasn't a massive change. It, it wasn't um, a complete alteration of how I already saw myself. So, yeah, a, a deep confirmation that, yes, this this was real and, and to be trusted and I could be wholehearted. Well, and so you're obviously – I don't know if you're the pastor of a church now, but your business is not being the pastor of a church. So what, how did you go from, what was, the, what was the next step that led you to personal development coach specializing in insecurity? So so that was 10 years that I was the pastor and uh, I'm pragmatic, I'm curious. And so I, I la- ask lots of questions and, um, you know, organized religions aren't set up for lots of questions. They're not designed for curious people. So um, I was suppo- suppose I was always on a trajectory out of that world. I, I couldn't see it at the time and, and didn't ever imagine it would happen the way that it did. And so I suppose the, the real challenge that I found was as a pastor, I was constantly invited into people's world to have conversations about change. Um, and And I was always surprised at how infrequently change ever happened. I'd be having the same conversations with the same people about the same things year in, year out, and I – was so confused by that because everything I had believed about the, f- the faith and trusting God and praying was that um, we were supposed to change. And yet I watched people be very childlike in their approach to change, i.e. I'm not supposed to do anything. I'm supposed to have childlike faith, I'm supposed to just believe, just trust, uh, and God will somehow magically, mysteriously take care of all the mess. I don't have to do anything other than believe. And I found that really difficult and problematic. And so I was really trying to find the answer to that question when I encountered some coaching frameworks from a mentor of mine. He ran a a retreat for our church community and I asked him to bring some personal development content as well, knowing he had some coaching frameworks. And I was blown away. I thought, this is a missing technology. Where has this stuff been my whole life? Self-awareness, responsibility, understanding choice, knowing human behavioral science, that that has to be a central part of being a mature adult and it must fit with an authentic spirituality as well. So that was another awakening moment where I'm like, wow, I, I feel so aligned to this way of thinking. I've got to go study again. Uh, and so instantly uh, the first, just like I did with Bible College, the first training organization I found, that'll do. You're going to teach me how to do this? Great, that'll do. Uh, and so I signed up for a diploma in life coaching that very weekend uh, and 
dived into understanding more about human behavioral science and, and coaching frameworks to solve the problem around how do we actually change. So you're just a, a diver right in era. A diver right in era. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> me to a T. <laughs> All in. And so it's a life coaching diploma. Is that is that like uh, like credited like a, at a uni in a university in Australia? Well, it's not a regulated industry, so there all the right. training organisations have some a coach training accreditation, but it doesn't mean anything really, uh, you know, because. I was that confident that I could use this stuff in the real world that on day two of my first three-day coach training intensive, I called my wife and said, look, I reckon I'm going to start a coaching business. At the time, I was also working as a school chaplain at the local high school. Uh, It was the first time when John Howard made chaplaincy funding available and I, I got the job which I loved, but I, I told her, I'm, I'm not going to be a chaplain anymore. I'm going to be a coach and I'm going to, this is going to be so cool and I'm going to make a million dollars and change the world and it's going to be really easy. And um, so there was no barrier to entry is, is what I'm saying. I didn't, I'd only just started my training, but I, I was confident that, again, it wasn't a massive shift in my orientation in the world. I'd already been involved in change, just not very effectively. Now I had some better tools, some frameworks, so... And I was wholehearted and and applying them to my own life already. So that gave me the confidence to go, I reckon I reckon I could be a coach. I reckon I can add this to what I do and be useful to a, war, a wider audience than just my local community, local church community. What would you say when you first started learning about that sort of thing, what would you say is the one thing like that hit you between the eyes Um that was like, oh, that's that's something I didn't understand before, or that that's the missing piece. Was that was there one of those mm-hmm. type things? Like, oh yes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, there is, and I can feel it in my body now. As you ask me that question, I, I'm I was absolutely gobsmacked by the idea that people work perfectly. So, um, the the Christian philosophy I'd grown up with is that no people are broken. That's the that's the problem. People are are inherently bad. Uh, there's they're sinful. There's some real problems, and so the hope is to trust in a savior who will forgive your sins and and then cover your brokenness, and you'll find healing there. But you are inherently broken as a human being, and there are many people outside of a, of a Christian or even a faith context who would assume that the human condition is that we are broken. We're, we're humans. We 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 suffer. Um, because we're human, but the thing that just changed my life when I dived into the coaching world was was that was uh, that was not true, at least as I understood it. That people work perfectly, which was back to back to systems thinking, back to engineering, just to go no no, uh, have a look at the patterns. Um, the results people are getting are in fact the exact results they've designed their systems to produce. They're working perfectly for how they were intended. Every behavior is an attempt to meet needs and protect fears. We're running strategies to uh, bring peace and comfort to ourselves. There's so much design work in in the life of a human. It, it might not be perfect to what they want. It might not be in line with their current goals, values, vision, but it is exactly perfect for how they designed it, and it's it's humming along as a, a brilliant machine. So if you can understand that, then you can deconstruct it and optimise it. So that that is the piece that has 
that revolutionized my life and um, it certainly is the backbone of all the coaching work I do in the world. You know, it's funny you said a line in there that I use training horses all the time, which I actually got from uh, reading child psychology books, but it's every behavior has a, is, a, is a need being met or a need not being met. And that's why the behavior is there. It's not that behavior is not the problem. There's a, there's a need that's not being met. Well, that's, that's it. People are very quick to assume they are their behavior. I think it's, it's assumed it's the most accurate indicator of character. If someone steals, they are a thief. If they lie, they are a liar. So um, to be able to separate behavior from intention and understand what we're trying to achieve, not to justify the behavior, but to seek to understand it. If you can see why you do something, then you give yourself the ability to alter that and improve the strategy to still make the intention in a more positive and beautiful way. So you've you've uh, you've gone to this certification thing. You've called your wife. You're like, I want to be a coach. <laughs> yeah. What, what 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 happened there? How did what turns did your wife make after that? Well, she cried. She's like, you're crazy. And and I'm like, I've got this. And I was all jacked up on Mountain Dew and you know the coach training environment's so, so full of fluff, and everyone's going to make a million dollars, and everyone's going to change the world, and everyone's signing up to the next upgrade, and it's a it's a very uh, squeaky clean sales marketing machine. Uh, but anyway, I I came back and I'm like, all right, uh, this is going to be easy, and found in fact it was the opposite of easy. It was incredibly hard, and what I did not anticipate was that I uncovered a mountain of insecurity by stepping out of the safe, known, comfortable world that I was good at. Um, as church pastor, I was I was loved, I, I was respected, I was good at my role, I, I knew where I fit, I developed a skill set, uh, a bunch of people who were my people, and then I stepped outside of that, and now I'm an, an unknown quantity. No one knows who I am. I have no respect. I've got no track record. And so uh, that was a massive surprise to me that all of a sudden this insecurity, I, I'm, it, it, it paralyzed me um, and, and threatened to stop me in my tracks. Uh, and so, you know, that, that was a crucial moment in my life too because I realized that I either have to solve this insecurity problem or I've got to go back to the safe, comfortable world that I grew up in. Uh, and it didn't seem like an option to go back. So that became the quest. That ultimately has become my work now. What to do with insecurity? How does this thing work? Uh, is it a solvable problem or not? You know, it's interesting. And I, I was pretty sure that was going to be the, the cause of your focus on the insecurity. I've had a number, you know, I've had quite a few therapists on the podcast who the reason they got into therapy is because they actually had some problems, had some therapy, had the experience with that therapy and how well it worked, and then they wanted to help others with that. And so, you know, the, the guy that the guy that's heading up the insecurity project was insecure. And I think I think things like that are what it's not that you need street cred for people to believe you, but you you're actually talking about a lived experience you're not talking about something you read in a book somewhere like you know it, does that make sense well it does and it's all i've got really as a life coach in an unregulated industry um no one really cares how i know what i know they just want to know that i know it 
That's all that matters. And they know that I know it when they look into my eyes and they hear my voice and they realize I'm not full of shit, that I'm smoking what I'm selling, that, that I am the embodiment of a message and I'm speaking out of the overflow of what I've discovered has worked. So that's, that's the only bit of value I've got in the world. And, and I actually like that it is that way because I've got friends that study psychology or, or counseling um, and I'm not sure that is demanded of them. I'm not sure they have to embody anything to be a successful psychologist. I think their qualifications endorse them to do what they do. They can hide behind a desk and solve other people's problems without ever having to have examined those same things in their own life. Uh, You can't get away with that as a life coach. Yeah, there's something, you know, I don't know if you're a fan of Brene Brown at all. I'm a big Brene Brown fan. You know who Brene Brown is? Of course, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know that that whole vulnerability thing that that thing she talks about, where you know when you become vulnerable, you you think that people are going to laugh at you or think you're stupid or whatever. But what you really get back is, yeah, me too. That you know you get that shared experience, and there's something about I think there's something about that 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 you can't replace with something else. You know I mean? Does, does that make sense? Like you can tell when someone's been there and. Yeah, it, it, it does. Um, the challenge I have with that piece is I think sometimes Brené's made it difficult for people by celebrating vulnerability uh, because now, you know, 30 years ago you weren't, it was not okay to talk about your stuff, not at all. Um, right. Now you're celebrated for talking about your stuff and therefore rewarded for dysfunction. So if you've got a thing that's wrong with you and you come into the world and say, this is me and I'm different from you and this is my challenge of being me, then it's like, oh, wow, you're so brave and so vulnerable. And so now you've got a thing that makes you special. And so if you actually you actually go the next step and get healed from that thing, now you've got nothing to hang your hat on. And so I think the culture of vulnerability now rewards dysfunction and therefore people tie their hat to it or tie themselves to that thing more than they have done ever before. So therefore it will become more dysfunctional and dysfunctional longer. Um, so when it comes to insecurity, like I say to people, I am not insecure. That, that is, I am not an insecure person helping other people not become insecure. I, I have solved this problem in my life. So... I'm saying this is solvable. So the confidence you've got in me is that I'm not insecure now. I used to be, but I'm not. Whereas I've got friends, I've got a friend who's an anxiety coach and she's constantly putting content together around how anxiety is still such a massive issue for her. And so that's why she can relate to other people because she still suffers with chronic anxiety. So she can be empathetic with others who suffer with chronic anxiety. Um, I'm not sure that's very helpful at all. Yeah, but I was with you. I was talking about the, the lived experience. Like, I've been from, you mm. know, I've been from insecure to I've I've solved that insecurity, and that, that's what I was talking about with like with the, the some of the guests I've had who've been like trauma therapists. Like, they've had these problems, they've worked through the problems, and so they come out the other side of the problems, and now they want to help others. Others do similar things. You know, something I wanted to ask you. You were talking about how you went to this you know, went to this um, certification thing and everybody's all excited and everybody's going to make a million bucks and everybody's going to solve the problems of the world or whatever. And looking on your website here, you know, Australian Enterprise Awards 2023 
winner of the most empowering personal development coach in Eastern Australia. How many of those other guys that were, or maybe ladies too, but how many of those other people that were at that thing have uh, a Australian Enterprise Awards most empowering personal development coach in Eastern Australia? They don't give everybody an award. Um, you know, it's you, you can go to, you know, you said it was kind of salesy and all that sort of thing. You can go there, but unless, I think unless you've got the, that something that you obviously you have, going there, you're just going to come home with a lot of information that you really can't help people with. Yeah, well, to answer your question, I, I don't know of anyone out of the 30 people in that room who is still coaching. Um, some moved into then sales coaching and like I think the, the industry lends itself to the pyramid schemes where if you can't make it as a coach, well, you can develop a business coaching business to help life coaches make more money, even though you never actually coached anyone in the real world, your success is telling people how to make money and you're making money because they want to make money. And so I've watched a number of people go down that path. But, like a Ponzi who, scheme. Well, it is in some way and it's it works, sure, and uh, <laughs> but I think there's something that's, that lacks authenticity about it. Uh, in terms of genuine life coaches, um, I, I don't know anyone from that class who's still doing it. And I don't know many people who are just life coaches in the world in a way that they've made it work. Uh, and I think the reason that is, is because you can't hide that there is nowhere to hide. It's your only chance of succeeding is to embody your message, which means you got to smoke what you're selling, which is, uh, that's all in. That's everything you've got. There's, it's all on the table. You're gonna have to work through your stuff completely before you can be useful. Yeah, but, you know, you've been a life coach for a long time before you had the certification, like even as a youth pastor, um, mm. you know, from all the way back there, I mean, you've been helping people talk about their issues and look at them and understand them for, for quite a long time. So it's, you know, it's not just the piece of paper you've got hanging on your wall that that allows you to be, let me look at it again, what is it? Most empowering personal <laughs> development coach in Australia. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. It, it it was a straight line. It didn't feel like I was a car salesman then became a life coach. It felt like, yeah, this is what I've been doing my whole life, actually. It all belongs. Now I'm just getting better skills and I'm able to do this with a wider audience and I'm, I'm upskilling who I am and refining my value add to the world. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you you'd mentioned a couple of times, yeah, I'm going to make make a million dollars and help all these people and stuff. And there was probably a number of people at that at that life coaching certification who were were there for the the money. You know, look at the money first, and then oh, well, this is how I'm going to do it. Whereas, you know, you'd you'd been doing that thing forever. I read a a book years ago. It's a very obscure book. I found it in a little bookstore in Hawaii it was called Backbone and it was a like a men's self-help book sort of a thing and, and in this book he said most men spend all their life trying to find four things at the same time and if I can get these four things at the same time I will be happy vocational success material wealth health and love and if I can have all four of those that's when I'll be happy and most people most men never get to have all four of those at the same time vocational success, mm. I'm in the C-suite, material wealth, I got all the toys I want, I'm happy, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in love and I'm healthy. And he said that 
the very unfortunate few get all four of those and then they go, shit, I mean, this is it. Like, I thought if I had all this, I'd be happy. And then he says this, there's three things you've got to have to be a complete human being. Number one, you have to know your purpose. What is your purpose in life? Number two is you have to have a deep and authentic spiritual belief. doesn't necessarily have to be a religion or anything, but deep and authentic spiritual belief. And number three is you got to get rid of your bullshit. <laughs> wow, what a summary. Yeah, it's, it's, a pretty, it's, a really, it's a really cool book. I've never seen it anywhere else. I've never heard anybody talk about it. And it was one of those <laughs> wow. things... It was one of those things we drove past this little, like a little strip mall, kind of half in the jungle in Hawaii. And I said to my wife, let's pull in there. We pulled in and we walked into this little shop and it like, it sold little like uh, Buddha incense burners and stuff like that. One of those kind of little stores. And way over in the corner was this, this tall, narrow bookcase that was kind of side onto it. So you couldn't even see the books in it over in the corner. And for some reason I was drawn to walk across there and peer into this bookcase and the first book I looked at was his book said Backbone. I pulled it out. I'm like, hmm, that'll be interesting. But I've never, I go to lots of bookstores. I read a lot. Never seen it anywhere else. So it was obviously one of those things that, that I was meant to read that book. I, I love the Rumi quote, what you seek is seeking you. And I love thinking about experiences like that. Just go, yeah, what a setup it was. Um, of, of course, you found that book. That was the right book for you, and it was looking for you just as like you were looking for it. And um, yeah, that's a beautiful experience to have happen. You would have had quite a few of those quote unquote coincidences in your life, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In fact, I've I've only got two tattoos, and the, the tattoos I have are, are kind of referencing that. Um, I'm a big Tony Robbins fan, and I don't know if you've seen his I'm Not Your Guru show mm -hmm. on Netflix. Yep, yep. Um, I've watched that so many times and it just, what a what a force of nature that guy is. And, you know, comes out on stage, beats his chest, see this guy, I built this motherfucker. <laughs> like, yeah, wow. You know, they're just this this power, this extraordinary power. And so I, I've got the word power um, tattooed on my left leg, on my left shin. I'm, I'm right side dominant and so – it's on my left leg because I still have the tendency to pretend I'm not powerful, to sit and wait for somebody else, to operate with blame and excuse, to somehow play the victim card, to compare myself to others. And and that's a reminder to go, um, Jamin, don't ever imagine you are not an, a force of nature as well, that you could do anything that you desire to be wholehearted. You know, so what do you want and what are you going to do about it? Um, but on my other leg is the word grace because I love the story at the end of that show where he tells, you know, about his his high school teacher who pulled him out of class one day and says, Anthony, I see you uh, and I, I've enrolled you for this speaking competition and I think you're going to be great. He's like, what do you mean? I'm, that's not me. He said, no, I see you. I see what happens when you open your mouth. Uh, mm. I know who you are. And he, he started him on this path that ultimately was a destiny play for him and changed his life. And as Anthony tells that story, he's like, I didn't do that. I, I didn't choose that. That was grace. That, that was um, given to me as a gift. Um, and I, I think that to me is when I reflect back on life, just the experiences of provision that the universe has set up um, with provision and the, the things that have happened that have changed my life, not because of how powerful I am, <laughs> but because I've been open and ready uh, and have received gifts. And 
I think that that to me is the paradox for how I orient myself in the world, power and grace. Um, but yeah, all kinds of amazing uh, coincidences. Yeah, I did a whole episode of the podcast about all the amazing things like that that happened to me. Uh, you know, you said something about that that tattoo. Some you were talking about power and that sort of thing. I don't know if you realize this, but if you ever look at a, an outline of the human body and they map the least painful to most painful areas to tattoo that the shin is the red area. <laughs> yes, I have seen that. Yeah, definitely. You have seen that. Because I've got I've got a I've got a number of tattoos, but I've got one that goes around my whole calf. And I think it might have been the last one that I got. But I've got, you know, I've got one on the inside of my upper arm, up near your armpit, and that's a pretty tender place. And I've got a I've got a half sleeve and like it goes up the around the back of my shoulder there that, you know, there's, there's places when they're doing that, it feels like someone's stabbing you on the back of the neck. And the one on my calf, I'm like, calf, big, fatty, meaty piece of mm. flesh. This will be easy. And that shin bone, oh, my goodness me. I think it was the most painful tattoo I've, I've had, and I've had a few painful ones. But, yeah, I, was, I think I was sweating quite a bit when they did the shin. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly was sweating a lot when I, my shins were done. They're only small, thankfully. No, this one's quite. This one's quite big. Um, is grace on your shin as well? Yeah, it is. It's in my right shin. Yeah. Right. There you go. I, I love the. I love the 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 choice of. Okay, I'm right side dominant, so I'm going to put that power on the left side. To, you know what I mean? That's. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Okay, let's get back to your journey. Uh, when you first started with the. With the personal development coaching, how was it? How was like getting into that and getting started? The, how did that feel? Yeah, well, I, I gave myself a month. I had a month of money from the school to survive on before I could get some uptake and some coaching clients. And I thought, yeah, it'd be easy. It was hard. Didn't sign up a single client that month. No one was interested. Um, and then in another act of, of grace, a coincidence, the school principal, when I told him I was leaving and, and not being a chaplain anymore, he, he said, you're an idiot, Jamin. Like, this is working so well. You're so good at this. What are you going to do? Be a life coach in Goulburn. Like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Uh, you're can, I just, like, can I just interrupt you for a second? Yeah, sh- so sure. <laughs> Goulburn, for you guys, this you know, people around the world listen to this podcast, Goulburn is a small country town in Australia. It's about two hours from where I grew up, so it's a very kind of similar country. It's probably about two hours from Sydney, is it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, between yeah. Sydney how and many, How many people in Goulburn? Oh, look, 22,000, Yeah, so not that big a place. And so, yes, he's like, you're going to be a life coach in Goulburn. Yeah, good luck with that. Sorry, I just wanted to interrupt and set the scene for what no, Goulburn think, actually yeah, was. Good, good point. If anybody's ever the uh, town- going through Goulburn, they have the world's largest concrete merino sheep there. It's a big statue. Claim to fame, yeah. The claim to fame. You can climb up inside it and look out its eyes. So he said, you're an idiot, a number of times, and then he said, look, uh, Campbell Page, they're an organisation that do good work. Maybe you could help them out. And it was kind of a backhanded response. They're, they were an employment agency at the time. Um, so anyway, driving around town, my money's run out. It's it's the end of four weeks, and I see this Campbell Page sign, and his words are ringing in my mind. Man, it just feels like I'm supposed to go in there. And so I walk in, and um, a school friend I hadn't seen in almost twenty years was the manager of that employment agency. And she said, <laughs> of course, oh, he was. And I said, "Oh, 
Yeah, <laughs> uh, she and she says, "What are you doing now, Jamin?" Um, I said, "I'm a life coach." She said, "No way." We were just talking about the fact that we need a life coach in this place more than anything. <laughs> and she said, um, "You know what? What could you do for us?" I said, "Well, I'll tell you what I can do. I've got this six week program that I could I could work with your most long term unemployed clients and deal with their non vocational barriers to work." Of course, I didn't have a six week program. I just kind of <laughs> made that up on the spot. Oh, that sounds amazing. What kind of things would you cover? Oh, I'd cover these kind of things. Oh, okay. And could you also start in uh, in Barrel and Yass as well? Um, this is exactly what we need. I'm like, oh, check my calendar. It turns out, yeah, I could also start in in Barrel and Yass. And so I went from zero to having um, 18 clients a week all stream for unemployed, so the most long-term unemployed clients on their books, severe challenges. Some of them had never worked. Um, some of them, some of their parents had never worked, and I'm going, I can help these people. And so it was in the deep end from the start, but an absolute incredible experience. I, I can still vividly remember the second client I ever had in that, just um, looking into his eyes and um, – being someone different, like I, I realized early on that I had to find leverage with these clients because they've been through every program. Everyone wants them to do something they don't want to do. And so I'm like, I'm not going to be the guy who wants you to do something you don't want to do. That's not going to be me. I'm going to position myself dispassionately. I'm going to position myself outside of your life. You're the hero. I'm just the guide. I will not rescue you. I will not take responsibility for you. I will serve you. And so... I watched what happened when I positioned myself like that and what that opened up. And the more I've understood about it, now it's become a central part of my coaching model um, in the in how to overcome insecurity, practice five is get help from someone who doesn't care about you. So just that dispassionate, embodied wisdom character is a central part of change. So I kind of learned that by default by working with people who'd, who'd had every single person fighting them to do something they didn't want to do. Uh, and it was breathtaking what unlocked for these people, conversations they'd never had with another human being. And I watched people make change. I watched people find choice and awareness and responsibility and not only find work but find themselves. Uh, and so it was it was brilliant. And I, I realised, my goodness, if I can be useful to the most stuck human beings I can find, well, okay, it's only up from here. I bet I could be useful to everybody. Yeah, I just clicked back to your website here while you were talking there. <laughs> you're you because you're working, you know, you're working with unemployed people who, like you said, they possibly never had a job, and sometimes their parents have never had a job. And this on your website says, "James, the founder of the Insecurity Project, specialises in helping entrepreneurs, leaders, and business owners eradicate insecurity so they can show up to life unhindered by doubt, fear, and self-limiting beliefs." Like you started out in the trenches, didn't you? Because because there is a reason someone is un, unemployed for a long time, and I imagine self limiting beliefs is a huge part of it. It's everything. It's the whole thing. They've shut down because you know they're they're telling people they're happy, but they're not happy. They just think, well, I can't get found out here. I'm not good enough. I don't fit in. I'm not smart enough. I'm not clever enough. I'm not whatever enough. And so if I try, if I put myself out there, it's going to go bad like it has every other time, which is going to further confirm the great inadequacy with me as a human being. So I'm going to pretend I'm happy being unemployed and make this system work for me. 
So I didn't buy into that story from for a moment. It went straight in the deep end. Like there was one, there was one client I can remember. You know, I I run this theory that if I can be dispassionate and not be the person who wanted something from them, I could get leverage. And I thought I'm going to see how far I can push this. And there was one client that got given to me from an employment agency, and they said this guy was the hardest person we've ever had. He's been through every program. Um, he's a deadbeat. Like he sits in a dark room playing PlayStation all day. His dad bankrolls him, so he has zero zero pain, zero motivation to get any work. Um, we don't know what to do. Here you go. You've got this guy. So I walked into the room. Um, he was sitting down. I said, oh, good day, mate. Um, are you a piece of shit? What? I said, are you a piece of shit? And he stood up and walked over and <laughs> come up in my face. What did you say to me? I said, are you a piece of shit? And he said, oh, don't you? I'm like, oh, these guys out here said you're a dead shit and that like there's nothing going on in your life. And I didn't think it was true, but I just had to come and find out for sure. And he was like, don't you ever say that to me ever again. No, I'm not a dead shit. No, I'm not a piece of shit. I'm like, oh, fantastic, great. Um, but then I had him. I'm like, Okay, so if you're not a piece of shit, then you are not happy. You are not fulfilled. I do not care what you say from from him. I'm, I just found you out, so now I've got you. And um, tell me what you really want. <laughs> tell me what what's going on. And so, it, it was a risky strategy, but it worked. And I'm like, I, I'm onto something here. If I can not be the person who needs something from them. We can have any conversation in the world. And the moment we can have any conversation in the world, we'll have the right conversations. Change is now on the table again. So, like, say this gentleman, for instance, what, why was he Why was he going through all these institutions? It's not like he's in jail, he's sitting at home playing PlayStation, what, and his father's bankrolling him, so he's not on the dole. Why, is, why, is, why has he had so much help? Like, who, who's, who's organising all that stuff? For someone like him, well, because, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Because he wants the doll as well, so his dad's kind of oh, okay, bankrolling okay. him so and trying of, to. Okay, this is part of the unemployment benefits. Okay, okay, exactly. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Yes, that's that's the reason why he's doing these programs. You're right. So his dad's okay. kind of wants to get him off the the money and get him into work, and so he's pushing him to do that. And he's like, oh, well, I'm doing all the things and dad's actually not going to kick me out here. Dad's going to keep bankrolling me. So there is no motivation. I, I can fail at all these things and still have the comfort of my own home and money. I'll be fine. And uh, how did he end up? Uh, when we finished the process, he had... Your six-week process. The six-week process, so <laughs> not a long time. But he'd understood for the first time what was actually going on for him, that the, the daddy issues, the challenge of uh, growing up with a very successful dad and always being in his shadow and just mm. never measuring up, never feeling like anything he did was of any success, always having his flaws pointed out. And so just just being so bruised by that and assuming that the reason he's had these experiences at home was because of a deep flaw in his character and makeup. And so um, realising his part in that narrative, realising that, sure, his dad's doing his thing, but his dad actually didn't have the ability to curse him. He's he's made meaning. He's 
been the one who's formed these assumptions. He's formed these opinions, making sense of his experience growing up in his home. And so for the first time, he he saw he had a play. He had room to move. He, he had eyes on the narrative he developed for his life. And the moment he could see that it was a story that he developed, then he understood that he could he could change this narrative. So um, the thing that was a big deal for him was that he moved out of home. He didn't get work in that six weeks, um, but he got out of home and created a bunch of other problems for him, but it was the beginning of him going, hang on a minute, uh, this story, I'm not the actor in this story, I'm the storyteller and I don't like this story I found myself in and it's the one I've written, so I'm going to make some changes here. Yeah, sounds like a sounds like a success. Yeah, that I I went to a um, few years ago. I went to a thing in Southern California called a Men's Emotional Resilience Retreat. There was, I think, eight of us there, um, ranging everywhere from like one guy was a former UN hostage negotiator. To on the other end of the scale was this this very sensitive um, guy who was a filmmaker. And everybody in between, including me. And the guy that ran the whole thing, Joshua Wenner, I actually had him as a podcast guest, he was so good at getting in there and getting stuff out. But when it came down to it, every single one of us had the opinion that we are not enough. And like I said, it didn't, match, didn't matter which end of the scale you're on. I mean, and, it, you know, everybody that went there can afford to go there, so it's not cheap. So it's not like anybody is sitting in their room playing PlayStation. But, yeah, when, you, when, it got down to, when it got down to it, every single one of us had that opinion. And before we went there, probably none of us actually knew it. It was really interesting. It was really, really powerful but it was and not just powerful to find out for yourself but but to be in a room with a bunch of other men who are from one end of the scale or the other so there's no one just like you there's you know there's one mm. one guy more end of this end of the scale than you and one guy on the other end of the scale from you but that was the common denominator with all this it was it was pretty fascinating to to be a part of well, it, it really is a universal issue. I, I think no one escapes their childhood without developing limiting beliefs about themselves. Even perfect parents do not prevent their children assuming there's some experiences that implicate them and, and mean there's a problem. And so it's, it's universal. Every single adult human being comes into adulthood with self-limiting beliefs around their value and worth. And most people will never address it. They will just manage that and mask it or medicate it. For, and it's a slow descent into madness if you don't root that out uh, and examine it. But most people won't. So it's, it's a big issue that causes a lot of suffering in the world. Yes. Obviously, you're really into it. You've written a book about it. It says here on your website, Jamin's an author of Unhindered, The Seven Essential Practices for Overcoming Insecurity, sorry, insecurity Elegantly Simple Solutions to Complex People Problems. Um, when did you write that book? Uh, unhindered or Elegantly Simple? Oh, I thought that was one big long. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> They're both the long titles, was... but... <laughs> there's a comma so in there, but I thought it was a comma in the, in the title. Okay. 
unhindered the seven essential practices for overcoming insecurity and elegantly simple solutions to complex people problems and the one minute coach 365 thought provoking insights to start your day based on the popular one minute coach radio segment heard by over 750,000 listeners daily tell me about the one minute coach radio segment where do you have that so that predominantly plays on christian community stations around the country uh the opportunity to connect with uh, you know the, the christian sector off the back of my pastoring work uh, but it's not a, it's not a christian segment it's there are a bunch of stations that produce content that's um you know, empowering and positive that's their that's their way of contributing to their community for a wider audience so um how that started when i was the chaplain at the high school i had a you know, an idea one day that I might do something on assembly each week. And so they called me Chapo, and so I thought I'd do Chapo's Thought of the Week. And the principal agreed to give me a two-minute slot on the assembly. He said, but, Jamin, you know, you've got to understand, if this is not funny, memorable, meaningful, engaging, empowering, you're going to get mauled. These kids are going to destroy right. you. So you're sure you Great want Great audience this? <laughs> to start with. And so it was the, the most difficult speaking engagement and the most difficult writing engagement of my entire life to date still. The amount of pressure, I would sweat bricks. Thursday morning I'd come around, I'm like, what am I going to say? And so I'd craft this thing, I'd refine it, or rehearse it and get up there and deliver this two-minute thing and turned out the audience liked it. In fact, it became a, a bit of a, a thing where students would just come to assembly for Chapo's Thought of the Week and then I'd get to publish it in the newsletter and... Um, you know, a bit of a cult following. So I kind of proved the concept that I could do this. And when I left the school, I thought, I wonder where I could take this thing. I wonder where else I could deliver this and had an opportunity to speak to someone in radio locally, Goulburn. And and the producer said, uh, I suppose you could do it. But he, he made me pay for the privilege of having that spot, even though I wasn't advertising anything. So it cost me a fortune for one month to do this two-minute snippet, um, but that opened the door to then go to the next radio station and say, I'm doing this thing in Goulburn. It's, it's well-liked. Could this be valuable to your station? Um, and so I kind of leveraged that, and all of a sudden I'm on five stations and I've got 30 segments that I've pre-recorded and they like it. And then the message is, okay, quick, where's the next 30? Like, oh, my goodness, this is hard. This is so hard because – I'm non-negotiable about the quality of these things. I'm not just adding to the noise. I, if I don't have anything to say, I'm not just going to make something up. Um, anyway, so um, the One Minute Coach book is five years' worth of uh, one-minute segments. I was only In the end, I was only allowed one minute, 60 seconds. So it had to be a complete idea, an idea that con didn't contradict with any others, an idea that didn't add to the noise, an idea that I still believe in. Um, so every word mattered. Yeah, so it took me five years to create 365 segments and, and they still play around the country even though uh, the last one I recorded was a few years ago. Um, and then I thought, well, I've got all the content there, so it's uh, I may as well put that into a book uh, so that people can access that in one spot. So long answer to the question, but, yeah, that's the one-minute coach. There was a lot to that. So you guys at home listening, <laughs> uh, I, I, I kind of – I was following along, but there was one thing you said right at the start of that that some people may have missed that I thought was so important. As far and this is about this is I'm, I'm talking about being successful at something or whatever is you paid for the privilege to start with. Mm. Okay, you you, <laughs> you paid 
for the privilege to start with. You know, it wasn't this wasn't given to you. You paid for that to start with. And then it went from there. And then, you know, it sounds like, it's almost like, uh, you know, working with those school kids with that assembly every week. That's working in the trenches because that's a mm. that's a tough audience right there. And then having to write these things for, you know, the, the number of times that you did. I mean, you've spent some time in the trenches on this stuff. That's that's <laughs> that's pretty pretty cool stuff. But yeah, the, you know, yeah, I, I I love the bit where you started out. You had to pay for it. I I think that's a that's an important part of that story. Well, thank you for, for noticing that because it was an important part. Initially, I went, oh, man, I, I think this is good stuff. Why why doesn't anyone else see that this is good stuff? They don't they don't see it. Okay, well, it was an opportunity to back myself to go, I, I think this is good stuff and I think it's important that I get in this door. So if I have to pay for that, that's what I'll do. So that was an investment in myself, I suppose, an investment in, in believing in my ability to contribute and to build my craft. So I, when I look back over my life, I've been coaching for, I don't know, yeah, 13 years or so now and over 15,000 coaching hours and five books and there's a bunch of success that's happening now. But I think, how did I get here? And I, and I always think about it as as a series of doors to walk through. Um, you you got to walk through doors and you never really know what's on the other side and some doors are pretty expensive to walk through and uh, high stakes. But if you're not willing to walk through some doors and find out, then you'll never know what's possible. So I'm, I'm grateful for the... Uh, yeah, the doors that I walked through early on, and the willingness to even pay for those doors. Yeah, those those doors are pretty important. You can't stand there and look at them and think you're going to get a glimpse inside there. You just got to open it, walk in there, and mm-hmm. it either works or it, it either works or it doesn't. Warwick is happy to announce his first book, "The Principles of Training: Understanding the Relationship Between You and Your Horse and Why Effective Training Works." is now available. After a lifetime of working with horses, Warwick has categorized every horse training method into 12 foundational principles. Understanding the intricacies of these principles will allow you to make the most educated horse training decisions on your horsemanship journey and is a must-read for any horse owner. Get your copy today on Amazon or get a personalized copy signed by Warwick on his website, warwickschiller.com. You know, regular podcast listeners would know that I send my guests 20 questions they get to choose from. And normally I kind of wait till the end, but the first one that you chose, I thought I'd bring up now because it's related to what you're talking about because you're talking about putting out a whole lot of different messages all the time. But this question is, if you could spread a message to the world, one that people would uh, listen to, what would it be? Or your favorite quote or both, whichever you want to do. Hmm. Well, I used to say I was on a mission to eradicate insecurity from the world and that was my one thing, that was my purpose. And then I realised how that sounded and no one, if you tell someone you're on a mission to do something, like, oh, here we go, this guy's about to preach and force something down my throat and it's quite re- it's repelling. So I'm not on a mission to eradicate insecurity. What, what I feel like my work is is to help end unnecessary suffering. Mm. So... Um, there's plenty of like life is suffering, so the aim is you got to, you get to choose between meaningful suffering and unnecessary suffering. Uh, so the one thing I would say is that insecurity is unnecessary suffering. It's 
everyone's going to be insecure. You don't get to avoid this. It's going to serve you for a purpose. Absolutely. Like it, being insecure in your 20s is probably going to be helpful. It's going to push you to do all kinds of interesting things to prove and defend yourself. But there's going to come a time where it'll be the number one inhibitor. It's going to ruin you. It's going to eat you alive and it will cause more suffering than anything else. And, and it is solvable. It, it is it is not something you can manage you, you, or that you can only manage. It is a solvable problem. In, in fact, the most important adult problem to solve and, and it's the cause of all unnecessary suffering. So long answer to the question, but uh, insecurity, solvable. Oh, I love your long answers and I loved your reframe at the start of that. You know, I'm on a mission to eradicate insecurity. Hang on. <laughs> I... No, I want to help people eliminate unnecessary suffering. And I love the fact that you said unnecessary suffering and then you said life is suffering. Like if you think life's not going to be suffering, it's going to suck. (laughs) You know, it's my uh, wife and I, I've talked about this quite a bit, I don't want to talk too much about it here, but my wife and I have been doing ice baths for quite a while. We're into into the ice baths and the ice baths are really cool literally and figuratively, but they're really cool because they are suffering. But you, if you reject the cold, if you get in there and you're like, ooh, it's cold, it's bloody cold. But if you can Mm. accept the cold and not fight against it, it's a completely different experience. And it 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 is suffering, but it's suffering that you choose and it's suffering that's actually helpful. And there's so many benefits to it, but. Yeah, but it, yeah, it's 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 suffering that you 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 choose, and it's it's. Uh, I had one of my guests. I think she's from actually from Australia, who is some sort of a kind of a life coach. But she she does a lot of equine assisted therapy, and but she does this thing called rewilding, and she's trying to help people rewild, like get in touch with who we're supposed to be. And and for me, those ice baths is is one of those. Have you ever done the ice baths? Yeah, I have. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of Wim Hof. Mm. So I I have a cold shower every day. Uh, And I I enjoy it. And I think when you expect things to be hard and find the meaning in those things and lean into that suffering, you find all kinds of great growth and progress that comes as a result of that. So, yeah, I I love it. Yeah, and... uh Goulburn is a cold place, so I bet your cold showers are starting to get a bit colder now. It's getting, toward, getting towards winter. I, yeah, I got friends who do cold showers in the Gold Coast or towns. I'm like, oh, good on you, cold showers. Yeah, come to Goulburn for a cold shower. You're right. It's the water's coming out, and it's minus eight frost outside, and that's that water coming through your pipe. That'll take your breath away. Yeah, it's 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 good for you though. I don't do the ice baths every day, but I, every time I have a shower, I, I have two minute cold shower at the end of it. Mm, yeah, it it's good stuff. I may as well continue on with your questions here because otherwise All right. you'll probably you'll probably answer them in your conversation anyway. Yeah. And you may have already answered this one: is um, what was the most worthwhile thing you put your time into? Something that's changed the course of your life? Yeah, well, this I. Okay, so I used to think I'm on a mission to eradicate insecurity. Then when I, I thought about purpose more clearly, I thought, um, I, I think, you know, so often people's purpose seems to be about them. Um, I got to do a TED Talk for a, a 
conference that was about purpose and the way that I approached it was in order to solve the purpose problem, you've got to solve the insecurity problem first because what looks like purpose, you know, look at what I'm doing in the world, it's so purposeful, is actually an attempt to validate your existence. Look at what a good person I am because of the work that I'm doing in the world. So I think real purpose is is not even about you. It's bigger than you. So I think your work is to know who you are and understand your value and worth separate from what you do. And then you can come into the world with nothing to prove and defend. And then you can connect with a purpose that's bigger than you and not even about you. So I think um, I get bored talking about insecurity. I, I talk about it all day, every day. I write about it. I, I dream about it. Every night without fail, I had some kind of coaching conversation. Sometimes I watch myself do a real-time 90-minute seminar about a topic I've explained a thousand times in my sleep. And it's it's all-consuming. But the way that I think about it is um, it would be incredibly unkind to not keep continue talking about insecurity. Like people are suffering because they don't know that this is solvable for whatever reason. Um, this is the area of work that has found me and I have found it and devoted myself to it. And it makes so much sense. Uh, it is such a predictable problem in my head. And so, yeah, that's the thing I've devoted myself to. I'm not sure there's anyone else in the world who's devoted themselves to thinking about insecurity uh, the, the way that I have. So, and I'll continue to do it for the rest of my life, I'm sure. Um, so I, I think I think it is useful, and I think there are plenty of people that have benefited from the fact that I, I have gone so wholeheartedly about this one thing. Another long answer to your question. I, I love I love your long answers. Something you said in there reminded me of. I talked about that um, men's emotional resilience retreat I went to, but the the basis of a lot of the stuff we did there was a book that's called King Warrior Love a Magician. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that book. Yeah, it's on my shelf here somewhere. Oh, it is on your shelf. Yeah, so it's a you know, good book. The, yeah, the 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 king, you know, the king is the the doer of deeds for the the good of everybody. But the shadow side of that, the prince who does it for external validation. And you know, mm. when I went to that that thing down there, uh, you know, I think I just passed about twenty six million views on my YouTube channel. But I had about I don't know. 22, something like that at the time, I put a lot of content out there, you know, and I think I'm doing these good deeds. And then I go there to that thing and they're talking about how, you know, uh, the, the the shadow side, the dark side of the king energy is doing things for external validation. I almost started having this existential crisis like, why am I doing this? Because mm. you, you get a lot of positive feedback from it. No doubt. And I really had to stop and think, you know, why do I do this stuff? But then I realized I, I the 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 validation came later. I was doing it because I wanted to help people with with stuff. And then, you know, the more you do it, the more validation you get. But the reason I got into it was not because of the validation. I didn't even realize it was it was coming sort of thing. But it did make me pause for a bit. And I you know, I there is there's childhood stuff and it yeah, for me, and I, you, you know, imagine this is what you're talking about with insecurity, but, but being concerned about what other people think about you is a, it's a, it's a struggle for me, and I think it's a struggle for a lot of people. But I struggle with it. It is a struggle for so many people, and the way that I frame it as in the judgment-free space, rather than saying it's good or bad, right or wrong, I just flag it as a safety issue. Say, so, okay, so you're a good person trying to do good good things in the world. Um, 
if you have the need to be liked and approved and accepted by other people, then you're very precariously placed. That that leaves you vulnerable because mm. if you're really going to follow your heart, that's a journey away from what other people are doing. And so you are less likely to get approval and acceptance and, and applause from others. You're going to zig when others are zagging. And so that's going to be catastrophic to your estate. If you rely on that fuel source, <laughs> your path is putting you in danger of running dry. So therefore, you'll be sabotaged internally. Your unconscious will say no. It will block you. You will stay here because you, you are, it is not safe to venture forward into your dreams while ever you are relying on an external fuel source. So let's not say it's right or wrong, good or bad. Let's just say it's dangerous. Just to say it's a safety issue. It's being flagged. <clears throat> So if, if these goals are important to you, then to address that safety concern and uh, find an internal source of that fuel means that you can venture on and your success will now be safe. And that seems to be a way to dial down some of the angst around dealing with this, this stuff I find for people. Mm. Uh, next question is, what is the worst advice given in your profession and you've got to quantify your profession. You're 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 pretty easy. Some of the podcast guests are, are, are do a lot of weird and wonderful stuff, and it's like which one of these things you do is your profession. But you you know, let's say you are, you know, you're a personal development coach. So in in that sphere, what's the worst uh, advice given? Would you say? Mm, I would say that it, that the change takes a long time. I'd say that's the worst advice. Would you say that's common? Very common and, and kind of underpinning that is just the idea that woundedness and and hurt and insecurity, it's a it's a forever issue. The best you can do is kind of manage that. And so change takes a long time because you change comes as you manage, you get better at coping with the pain and wounds of your past and um, dealing with your brokenness and you know, finding coping strategies to manage in the world. Th that to me is such a misunderstanding and a tragedy. Uh, I, I think, yeah, change may take a long time coming, but it always happens in a moment. Change is an instant thing. Every single time when change is real, it happens in an absolute instant. And it is very binary, and that speaks to the nature of what caused the, the problem in the first place. Um, so as a rabbit hole I could go down, I, I'm mindful this is just a short question. So, uh, but that that advice is is uh, yeah very destructive, I would say. Well, we've only got a couple of questions left and plenty of time. So if you want to go down a rabbit hole, rabbit away. Well, let me see if I can do it as simply as possible. I, I interviewed a psychologist on my podcast recently, and I asked the question: Is insecurity a solvable problem, um, and can our wounds be healed? And he was like, "Well, no. I mean." The best we can hope for is that the scars, the wounds become scars and they close over so that they're not open, gaping wounds and we can manage ourselves. But no, you can't ever fully, they'll always be a part of us. So, you know, I'm an engineer at heart and so I love to deconstruct the logic of what he's saying. And when I think about insecurity as a problem, my number one job for people is to define the problem precisely. Because people are stuck in levels of abstraction around insecurity that is not helpful. So people imagine insecurity is the fear of failure or the fear of rejection or they feel like they feel like they uh, are not valuable because of the things that were said to them or done to them or not said to them or not done to them. Um, however, insecurity at its core is actually a problem within our own opinions of ourselves. We are not afraid of failing. 
we're afraid of the implications of failing. Oh, if I fail, what does that say about me? Uh, it says that I am a failure. We're not actually afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of the implications of being rejected. If I was to be rejected by you, what does that reveal about me? Uh, that I'm not worthy of love. So now I'm found out. Now the worst thing I think about me is exposed to the world and confirmed. So when it comes to insecurity, we're not afraid of what's out there. We're afraid of what's in here, our own worst opinions about ourselves. And when you understand how those opinions were created in the first place, we're sense-making creatures, we go into the world, we have experiences, but we have to decide what those experiences mean. So uh, I love the four agreements. Don Miguel Ruiz says, <laughs> yep. um, you know, it's not the words spoken to us that change our lives, just the ones we agree with. So we're implicit in our own demise. We, n- no, one, no one has the power to bless us or curse us without our permission. And so when you see that, you realize that, oh, my goodness, I'm, my, my fear about being loved or accepted or that I'm not enough is because at some point I decided that there is a problem with me. I did that. No one else had the power to do that. I had an experience. I assessed it. I personalized it. I gathered some data as a child and went, uh-huh, the reason my parents got divorced was because of me. I was implicit in that. I got between them, so I'm a dangerous person. There's a problem with me. And then and then let's seal that up. Let's live as though that's true and never review that for the rest of life. So the wound about the divorce that you're going to manage for the rest of your life is not actually about divorce. It's about the meaning you place on that divorce and the personalization around why that happened and what it meant about you. So the logic here says, okay, if you're going to, if you have the courage and kindness to go and review that assumption, one of two things is going to happen, and only one of two things. You're either going to be right about that assumption or you're going to be wrong. It can't be both. You made this assumption when you were four, and off the back of that assumption, you have been wounded ever since. But if you go back and open that file and realize you were too quick to assess it, that in your childish awareness, you you were too quick to assume that you were implicit in that. And in fact, it had nothing to do with you. You were an innocent bystander. Your parents had problems before you arrived. <laughs> you were gifted into a family that didn't know what to do with you. It had nothing to do with you. And so you were wrong. So therefore, all these things you think are wrong with you are a mistake. Now, if you can see it like that, then the wound doesn't just get into a scar. It dissolves. It disappears. There is no substance to it. There is no structure to it. It's a giant misunderstanding. You got it wrong. And you realize that you're, in fact, inherently valuable, wonderful, worthwhile. That's always been true. You've just been living with the assumption that none of that is correct. So if you can have that courage, and it is very much the hero's journey to go back into that pain and really review the data thoroughly and face the thing you, you're most terrified about yourself. Um, but just like the hero, there's only two things that happen in a hero's journey. The hero gets to a point where his, his only two options are now, I either die or I come out the other side reborn. That's the only two things that can happen. I'm, I'm in too deep. So either this monster is going to eat me alive or I will come out the other side victorious. So when you consider insecurity like that, it's a very binary problem. You either write about the worst things you've assumed were true about you when you were a kid or you are wrong. And if you are right, you die. That's it. There is a big problem with you and it's just been confirmed. But if you are wrong, well, you get to go free, completely free. And that wound is no longer there. How do I go with that summary? Did that, that land? 
I, I love your long short answers. That's that was. <laughs> but I was thinking, you know, you, you look like on Instagram or whatever, and and it'll have a someone talking, and it has the words showing up on the screen, you know, as they're talking, mm. and it's you know, it's forty five seconds long, and it's like impactful. It just like hits you in the gut, sort of thing. The start of that, I was I was just picturing that like. Oh, we could take this footage of you talking and put that on. Like, this is the shit. This stuff's cool. I love that. Yeah, that was that was awesome. Um, so, how many people have you come across who were right about their childish assumptions? Yes. Uh, none of them. Yes. <laughs> Not a single one. Yes. Because exactly. it's impossible. What what child is right about anything? Like it, it is not possible for a child to have enough objectivity, enough emotional intelligence, enough awareness of the world to know who they are in their context. That is absolutely impossible, which is the, the irony and the great fun in examining insecurity. Like People are so terrorised by these unresolved angst from their childhood and they do not want to go back. Like every day I'd have someone say, you know, Jamin, you're a life coach, you're forward focused, you're about goals. You know, we don't have to go back into the past, do we? And I always say, oh, look, I, I never take people back into the past. I mean, like, except where it's necessary. Oh, and it's always bloody necessary. So, yeah, buckle up, we're going back. You know, of course we're going back. What do you think this is? Yeah, the I, kid's always wrong. The kid's always wrong. Unbelievable. You know, I had to ask that question because at the end of that, you, you gave us an ultimatum. You said, hey, there's only two things that can happen. You're either right mm. and you mm. die. Yeah. Or you're wrong and you're reborn and off you go. The hero's journey. Yep. Yep. Only two things. So That's... much angst. And it has to be, it has to be angst, right, because it is the hero's journey, so it's got to feel impossible. If it was a given, if it was easy, there'd be no value in it. So I, I, I wouldn't like be reborn. high stakes. You wouldn't be reborn, not at all. Mm. Can, is, your, um, is your TED talk on YouTube or something or other? Mm, yeah, it is. Yep. Oh, good. I'll have to look it up because when you were like when you spat that whole soliloquy out there, and like you were passionate about it, and it's just coming out of you. I'm like, oh, I'd love to see this guy on stage. That'd be cool. We um last year in San Antonio, we had our our first podcast summit. So we had 22 of the guests from the first year of the podcast uh, present over three days. And they were they did things like TED talks, but TED is trademark, so we couldn't call them TED talks. We called them TikToks. Teach, yes. inspire, connect, yep. and uh, everybody nice. rocked it. They were, they were all amazing. But I was I was while you were talking, there, I'm thinking, oh, I bet this guy could rock it on stage. That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing so, like it when you you got a room. Mm. Oh yeah, and I when well tell us about a TED talk when you do a TED talk. Um, who's in the room? Yeah, so I, I don't think the TED Talk has been my favourite speaking experience, not at all, just because it's so curated, so they're so sure on you got to get this right. So every word is rehearsed and you've done it a million times. And so um, great. So you deliver exactly the things you're going to say. But I've found, you know, my best talks have been when I get to play, when I get to dance, when you got people in in your hand and you get to take them on a journey, you got a longer time. You I only had thirteen minutes with a TED talk, and it was delivered to um, a Scotch College in Adelaide, so it was their senior group. Um, so their their whole quest for young people finding purpose that was the mm. theme of their conference. 
Yeah, I, I imagine you would lose some of the the vitality, some of that energy, some of that passion with something that you are saying word for word. Like, because when you were talking there a minute ago, it was just coming out of you. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like it was curated to where I am giving a response to the question. You know, you didn't even know what your next word's going to be. It's just flowing out of you. And that's uh, that's when the good shit happens, I think. I agree. Although that particular soliloquy, I reckon I could do that again almost exactly the same way if I had to do that again off the cuff uh, the next 100 times in a row just because that has been that idea has been so refined so many times, so road tested uh, that – uh, yeah, and, and when I'm awake and when I'm asleep, I still hear myself run through that same explanation because people are suffering unnecessarily. People don't know this stuff. People are like, no, no, it's a thing and I can't go back and I'm terrorised by it and I'm not good enough and I've got all this evidence that it's it's true. And so, uh, yeah, but but there's still so much passion and energy around it just because uh, it's what I was born to do and um, the implications for what happens when a person is healed. I think that's how the world gets healed, when one person has the courage and kindness to go back and review the worst assumptions they've made about themselves as a kid and see that they're not true and come out the other side reborn. So the world the world needs uh, secure human beings, secure leaders, secure business owners more than, more than ever. Yeah, it was, you know, a minute ago you were just saying that a lot of people are scared to go back, um, you know, scared to go back and, and work through that stuff. But, you know, and the, but I do think, and this is coming from personal experience, I spent probably, I spent probably 50 years of my life not even knowing the opinions I had of myself, not being mm. conscious of them. So you're, you're talking about people who are at least, conscious of that because it's it's a pretty unconscious sort of a thing that lurks below that surface that you that i imagine influences our interactions with everybody everything we do everything we say and i think it's you know it's 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 tough when people aren't even aware of it. You know, I had a lady at a clinic years ago in Ohio who'd written, she was a, a professor of psychology, but she'd written a book about eating disorders. But the book was not about eating disorders. It was, the book was for people who live with people who have eating disorders and uh-huh. how to live with someone who has eating disorder. And she was talking about, I think she said there was five steps. You know, the person doesn't even know they have an eating disorder. They that's step five, step or step that's step one, then step two is I think I might have a problem and it works all the way up to step five, which is I have a problem and I'm willing to work on it. And she said the pre- the trouble most people have when they live with someone who has an eating disorder, and I imagine it would be the same for any disorder, but this was eating disorders, is they speak to them like they're at step five when they're only at step mm-hmm. one and it just alienates them because they're you're talking to them about something they don't even they don't even know is is there and and I don't know how many you know I think my midlife crisis came way after midlife uh, but you know I I think for a long time people go through life without knowing being being aware of that that voice in your head that 
tells you you suck and, you know, tells you all those, you know, those opinions you have of yourself. You're not even, I don't think some people are fully aware of them. What's been your experience? Yeah, this is kind of my business coach flagged this when I launched the Insecurity Project as my as my brand. He said, oh, that's not going to work. You know, people are insecure about being insecure. So it's a hidden problem. Mm. People don't have awareness. And if they do have awareness, they don't want to have awareness. So no one's walking around going, oh, Jamin, I'm insecure. Can you come help me? Uh, so he was saying that it's no way that that name's the right name and you can't approach it so directly. Uh, but I, I, I obviously did not take his advice and thought I'd much prefer to put a flag in the ground and just go, okay, yeah, you're not going to be ready for a long time, maybe never, but uh, I'm just going to speak plainly about this as a problem and bring awareness around it so you can watch me. And people do. People watch me for years before they lean in. They just go, what's this stuff about insecurity? Surely I'm not insecure. And and they just watch and listen and see what happens. Uh, And so... I think it's not until some kind of crisis. No one calls me because everything's awesome. People call me in pain. Right. Call me. Yeah. And then when you're in pain, you're ready to be wrong about some stuff. You're ready to be open. (laughs) It's the gift of pain. Uh, Another reason why midlife is such a great time to have these conversations because there's a bunch of things that start breaking down when you get older that aren't a problem when you're young. So, yeah, I think you're right. Most people um, don't have the awareness that this is the issue or don't want to have the awareness that this is an issue because it's such a painful and existential problem. Um, nevertheless, it's the it's the problem I've been um, born to <laughs> devote my life to solving, so I keep finding ways of having the conversation around this uh, in a way that dials down the angst and helps people see it as a predictable problem and a, and a very solvable one. Yeah, you're, you're the... You know, the, the guy that said, oh, I wouldn't call it that because people, you know, are afraid of insecurity. But what he wasn't banking on is the, I don't know if it's a roomy quote, but, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. You're the, the, yeah, the teacher's yeah. being there and then when they're ready, they'll go, yeah. Like you said, people will hear you talk about it for years and then at some point in time, the pain is bad enough to where they they look inside and they kind of go, yeah, that's that's the problem and I want to work on it. That's exactly how I thought about it. And so I thought, I want to be visible when they're ready. So that's what I'll do. I'll play the long game and I'll keep speaking plainly about this problem when people are listening or not. That's okay. That's that's my job, to settle down, not worry about how this is working, just do my work. Um, have you read A Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson? Mm-hmm. Yes. What an extraordinary book. And... The thing that blew my mind, I, I just remember shaking my head listening to that book almost every time I was blown away by some extraordinary thing. But the thing that impacted me most about that was men and women who devoted their life to solving a problem that today we get to, we get to benefit from. So thinking about the, the circumference of the earth or the distance the moon is or um, – you know, things that we like. How does that impact us? Well, it impacts everything about our modern world. And people devoted their life, and some of them got to the end of their life and still hadn't solved the problem, had done all this work, and it had come to naught, and yet they'd thought it meaningful enough to devote their life to doing it. And so I just took so much heart from that just to go, hey, Jamie, just do your work. Like, just do your work. Don't worry about how this looks 
or how people are responding. Just do your work. You know it's your work. You know it's your work. So shut up about how it's working. Shut up about money in the bank or clients or what events you're speaking at. Or what, just do your work. And that has brought great solace. And, and there's been a lot of meaningful suffering in that, obviously, but it is very meaningful suffering and helps me just stay in my lane and do the thing I was born to do. Yeah, it's interesting when you say, you know, just do the work, just do the work. Is it the work or is it the purpose? Because I, I think you're like me, is I could not imagine getting up and going to work every day to something that you are not passionate about just to pay the bills. No, I, I 100% agree. Uh, however... Sometimes it's hard to be passionate about a thing that is difficult or, or if it's passion that is everything, then when the results aren't coming in or um, business is hard, you're like, this sucks, this is hard, Where's, mm. this is not a passion project, this is a very difficult endeavour and it will be far easier to go do something more enjoyable. So I've kind of felt um, willing to disconnect passion from this to go, it doesn't really matter how passionate I am about this experience. Um, I know without a shadow of a doubt this is what I was designed to do and it is very meaningful. And so I'm just going to do that. And whether, I, whether I'm whether i loving the experience of it or not, that doesn't, that doesn't determine how wholehearted I'll be about it. And that's been useful for me in the, in good seasons and bad seasons over the years. But you do um, love it anyway. Well, well, of course I love it because it's so meaningful. Yeah. Um, but, but it's still very hard, very, very hard to choose a path. Um, and this specific subject, it's it is not a palatable subject. So, for instance, you know, the majority of my friends in Goulburn do not talk to me about this subject. Like I'm right. intimidating. I'm I'm the, I'm the guy who's talking about the thing no one wants to talk about, and I've devoted my whole life to that. So that's a problem socially. That creates a bunch of awkwardness. Um, you know, it's a problem in terms of business thing because I'm taking people on a hero's journey. That's the deepest existential angst. So it'd be far easier to sell lightweight solutions and um you know sugar sugar pills or silver bullets that solve an immediate pain problem but i'm i'm like i can't do that i'm i'm going to solve the hardest problem you've got and that's going to be difficult and lots of people aren't up for that so all that to say just coming to terms with the fact i've chosen a, a difficult road and that's okay that's still meaningful and i wouldn't have it any other way and it i don't need to always enjoy it to still find meaning in it there is a term, I think it's a Japanese term, and it's like, it starts with an I, and it's got about six or seven letters, Inkenji or something like that, but it's like a Venn diagram. I, I, ikigai. Thank you very much. I, ikigai, yep. I was just trying to research. And I, I think it's, it's like a Venn diagram with like three circles, I think. One's your passion, one's your purpose, and one's something that pays the bills. And if you can get, the, get them all to cross, which you, you, have, you are doing, you can get them all to cross, yes. that's whatever that thing is, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think there are actually four circles. Um, what did you say it's called? Yeah, but like Ikigai, I-K-A-G-I. Okay. The th oh, here we go, yes. There's four circles because the thing that I looked up was something in Hindu that was, <laughs> I, was in, I think I was in Kanji or something, but it was something in, in, uh, in Hindu that said, had something to do with your purpose. So I was pretty close, but... Okay, so there is what you love, what you're good at, what you can be paid for, and what the world needs. Uh -huh, and if you can, you if you can, 
if you get what you love and what you're good at, that's passion. If you get what yep. you love and what the world needs, that's your mission. If you get what the world needs and mm. what you can be paid for, that's your vocation. If you can get what you're good at and what you get paid for, that's your profession. But if you can get them all to cross in the middle, it's that thing. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're doing that. What the world needs, what you can get paid for, what you're good at and what you love. I think you're right. And I'm lucky enough to be doing that too. So yeah, it's a, it's a blessing. <laughs> I got some more questions here for you. What quality do you admire most in a person? <laughs> I did a, uh, a blog around the five qualities of genuinely good human beings. Um, and I, so I think, think it would have to be on those on that list of the five. And to me, the thing I admire most, it would be objectivity. Uh, I don't know if anyone would have answered that question like that before, but let me explain Never. why I say objectivity. Never. <laughs> I think it's the hardest of the human qualities, but the most beautiful. Um, because we are subjective creatures and so we're so inclined to see the world, see our map of the world and assume it's the whole picture to see, to assume that we've understood it and we're right and um, therefore to not empathise with someone else's position or, or see what else is out there. So it creates a very small map of the world. So I think um, Dr Robert Keegan, who was the chair of human behaviour at Harvard, he said the subject-object switch is the thing that accelerates human growth more than any other thing in the whole world. So basically it's just every moment spent practicing objectivity through mindfulness, through self-awareness, through coaching, through reflection, to get outside, to zoom out from your experience of being you is, a, is an experience that will change you and it will change you for the better. It will make you a better human being. So I think uh, objective humans are my favorite, that the ability to get get outside of themselves and have a look around and to not take themselves so seriously to see things in a broader perspective to understand how others are coming at life uh, and I, and I feel like I'm becoming more of an objective human being and that's softening me and um, deepening me so uh, yeah that's that's my answer object objective people that's a good one I've not had that before I'm I love the way you put that too. Um, next question, and this is, I don't think anybody has failed to choose this question. What is your relationship like with fear? So I, I say that I'm not insecure and the distinction I make around insecurity as a solvable problem is that the aim of the game is to completely eradicate insecurity at your current level of growth. Nothing. To be here, present and unguarded, unhindered, be at your best where it matters most. Um, however, when anyone does that, then inevitably you venture forward into the world. You step into new uncertainty. You expand your experience and try things you've never been able to try before. And so invariably bang your head on the next level of fear and insecurity because you go, well, I, I realized that I was good enough for that and I was capable of doing this, but, but that, you know, I could work with this person, but could I work with that person? I could earn this amount of money, but can I earn that amount of money? I could play in this space, but what about that space? And so my relationship with fear is I, I love it when an insecurity shows up for me because it's evidence of growth. It means I'm taking new territory. I'm exploring bigger horizons. I'm um, being enlarged as a human being. 
And I love it because I know how to resolve it. I go, huh, it's a principle. I understand the principles of eradicating fear uh, as an insecurity. So the same seven practices that got me free at the last level of growth will get me free at this next level as well, and on and on. So I did not I did not experience fear in any way that is debilitating. And for that, I'm grateful. That's I'm glad you put that on the end of it. When you said, I did not experience fear in any way, I was thinking, holy shit, that's a big statement. Then, and then you said, that is, in de- that is debilitating. And I was like, yes, that's the difference right there. I do not experience <laughs> fear. That's, be- that's, the, that's the thing right there, isn't it? You don't let it be debilitating. It's, yeah, that's, that's very Because cool. it's a conversation. It's a conversation. Like I love self-doubt, distinguishing self-doubt from fear. I think self-doubt's a beautiful indicator of just the boundaries of your skill set. So if I didn't feel self-doubt at certain times, then I'd be delusional. Self-doubt says, yeah, Jamie, you've never done this before, so are you sure you've thought this through? And it's a conversation. It's an invitation to go, okay, yeah, actually I haven't thought this through. I'd need to learn this, this, and this. I better build these skill sets, these muscles, before attempting this in a way that's safe. Thank you for flagging the limit at the edge of my experience to date. doesn't say I'm a bad person. doesn't say I shouldn't do it. It's just a conversation to be had. So I love that. Um, fear to me is more likely to be irrational and built on some assumption that I've formed at a much younger time that's then worth examining and deconstructing because it, it's very unlikely to be true because the kid's never right. So self-doubt's useful. Fear very rarely if ever, has any substance to it. I love the men- a minute ago you said something about, uh, I think you said if you, I forget if you told me it's fear or self-doubt, but you said, you know, you've got to, you've got to have some. And I, and I was going to say, yeah, if you didn't have that, you'd be a, like a sociopath or something. Yeah, you'd be delusional if you didn't have some Delusion, that's the word you said, yes. Yeah. You'd be delusional. Now, the, one of the questions you didn't ask, but, it's the thought has come up during a conversation here is one of the questions is what do you do to recharge your batteries? Cause you mentioned mindfulness a minute ago. And, and one of the questions is what do you do to recharge your batteries or find motivation? And uh, I'd be interested to know that from you. Hmm. So I read Tim Ferriss's book, the four hour work week, probably 10 years ago and it changed my life. Um, Time, money, mobility being the three luxuries. And I thought I'm going to go for time first because that seems to be the hardest one. If I go for money first and under the thought that when I have enough money, then I'll be able to have enough time to do the things that I want to do, I'm not sure it'll ever work like that. So I I took a 12-month sabbatical and then reorganized my life based on how I'd like to live, even though I didn't have a business plan for how I was going to finance it. And so discovered that my ideal work week is 24 hours spread across seven days. So that's, mind you, that's 24 hours high intensity. Um, And you could probably pitch to say that most people in nine to five jobs are only experiencing 24 hours of intensity across their whole week as well. But um, the point is I have a beautiful lifestyle where I I spread out my work across the week. So every day I've got periods of high energy and low energy, periods of rest and fun and periods of of work and and, – and passion and leaning in. So I have a great setup. I have a really beautiful dialed in experience of state management and energy and the things that I do to recharge. Um, I, I love sport. I, I'm 
just cannot get enough sport. Sport energizes me. I love playing it. I love watching it. I love thinking about it. I love reading it. <laughs> so uh, NBA, cricket, football, lawn bowls, you name it, I'm across it. So um, so sport's a big part of how I put energy back in. I, I've, I've been a runner my whole life. I love distance running. And I find it so therapeutic and meditative and it's always an energy back in kind of experience for me to get outside, pound the pavement. I live in the country, so it's always, you know, fresh air and country roads. Um, the road's always open, so I can always head out and enjoy running. Uh, yeah, enjoy reading, enjoy watching movies, enjoy eating crinkle-cut chips and drinking beer. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think they're probably most of the things that I do to, to energize and, and be in a great state. Wowzers. That kind of that about covers the whole thing, doesn't it? <laughs> so uh, anything else you need to tell us about your, your amazing life? Uh, how old is your daughter that suggested <laughs> you come on the podcast? <laughs> um, she's 18 as far as I can tell. <laughs> as far as you can. She's, she's, she's my firstborn. Well, they keep getting older, kids, and every time I think I've got their age dialed in, I go to tell someone they're 18 and then I realise, oh, hang on a minute, no, I'm pretty sure they just had a birthday. They're older than that. So, yeah, I think she's still 18. Yeah, let's let's lock in A, 18. Is, is that your final answer? <laughs> That's my final answer. <laughs> you don't want to phone a friend or anything? I don't. No, no, I've got it. I'm comfortable. Okay. She's 18. She must be. A, I imagine she's a pretty amazing kid having you for a dad. Oh, well, that, that's kind. She, uh, she's a lot like me and uh, she's a lot stronger than I was at that age, that's for sure. She's a, a firebrand and we go head to head on a lot of subjects. She's often given me some TED talk about the male patriarchy or toxic masculinity <laughs> and uh, <laughs> policing me to make sure I'm woke enough and these kind of things. Uh, but I, yeah, I won't be positioned as her enemy. And so I, I don't accept her critique often. And <laughs> we have some very serious conversations. But she also feels like she's a fully qualified life coach because her room borders my office. And so she's always hearing me coach. I'm often coaching in the car. And uh, she feels like she understands all my life's work by um, how the proximity she's had to me over the years. So she, she hands out all the advice, um, but no, but she's she's a beautiful kid. And she's she's very passionate about um, her life and the work that she's doing. She she loves her horses and loves a holistic approach. You know that's why she's such a fan of you and, and your work. It just is such a deep part of how she sees herself and animals. So um, very very proud of her. And yeah, um, what a what a great joy and privilege to be a parent and to get to be involved in a young person's life as you shelter them and nurture them and train them and and then have them go their own way and they're their own person do their own thing so, yeah it's it's yeah, it's pretty me. cool you know i've i've got we've only got one son and he's amazing but uh i've got to watch some kids grow up whose parents have followed what i do with the horses and you know there's a, a lot of the things you've talked about today uh, some of those things you learn them from horses. You know, to get along with horses well, you you have to learn to look at things a certain way. And and it's been really interesting to see kids that you know when you first saw them they were eight, and now they're 
18 or whatever, who look at life kind of holistically, you know, like, like, you know how you said you, you could have been, you know, selling the sugar pill or whatever, but you want to get to mm. the root of the problem. And, and yeah, it's been, it's been kind of fun seeing, seeing kids grow up, at least from the horse perspective and having a totally different outlook on life than maybe her, their friends are the same age who, who have a horse or a lot of times it even, it even, um, you know, goes over to other areas of life. I had a guy email me a couple of years, oh, it's a few years ago now, and he works for a company called Ingersoll Rand. I think they make elevators and forklifts. They're somewhere here in America. And he's one of f five worldwide managers. And one of the things they get rated on is their employee satisfaction. And he'd always been number four. The whole time he's been uh, the, one of these five worldwide managers has only ever been number four. He's never been number five, but he's never even been number three. <laughs> and his wife has a horse, and then he kind of got into the horses and started watching my videos and whatever. And whatever it was that I was talking about with the horses and the way you go about things and look at things, he started going, well, I can implement that at work. Anyway, when he emailed me, he said, I'm now number two. And the changes that I have made at work – we're all from watching your horse training videos. And so it's, it's, you know, it's interesting how the, it's still, it's still relationships, you know, it's, it's, you're dealing with another sentient being with the horses. It's one that can't speak, but uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I had a, I had a, a an email from a, a you were a sports guy from a former NHL hockey player. He played in the NHL for 14 years or something or other. I watched some, um, uh, YouTube videos of this guy. So he was one of the enforcers. So he's a big, scary dude. But he now coaches, <laughs> he now coaches kids and has been, for some reason, he must have a horse or something. He's been watching the videos and he was saying that he, he, he said he's a better hockey coach and a father and a husband from watching these horse training videos. So, you know, there's a lot of life lessons in it. But what I'm getting at here is it's been fun watching kids grow up learning those life lessons from horses and see how they turn out as young adults. And I imagine your daughter getting all the life lessons from having her bedroom next door to your coaching sessions <laughs> um, <laughs> has probably turned her into a pretty amazing human being. Well, I think it's definitely uh, rubbed off on her and she's so curious and uh, seeing her apply it to her own life has been really beautiful. But, but I think the horses too, like when, when my wife and I got married, we've been married 24 years, we both grew up on land and we moved to the bustling metropolis of sunny Goulburn and we got married and when we, when we envisaged our future, we said one day we'll have 20 acres five minutes from town. That, that is our dream and a big part of that dream was the lifestyle to raise a family with, with land and the ability to have animals. And so that was an impossible dream for, for young people with no money and um, you know, everyone wants 20 acres five minutes from town. So it's not like, you know, that's an obscure dream or I'm the only person who wants it. Um, you know, but but here we are on, on that block of land and with the opportunity to have kids grow up with horses and motorbikes and dogs and cows and the the ability to be connected to the land and and that's that's such a beautiful thing to watch what happens when kids get that experience. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure you get to see that all the time with the work that you do and you know, I wholeheartedly agree on the importance of it. 
Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. Okay, so let's get down to the specifics here. How do people find out more about you? Well, so if you can work it out to spell my name, you'll either find me or a Korean K-pop star. <laughs> <laughs> so if I if if you look up Jamin's and you find one that doesn't look Korean, then you're likely to have found me. Uh, but but Jamin Fraser, Jamin the only Jamin. <laughs> Jamin Fraser, you'll find me. There's only one Jamin Fraser. Uh, if you look up uh, Overcoming Insecurity, if you look up The Insecurity Project, um, you will find my podcast, you'll find my website. Uh, hang out on Instagram a bit. My podcast is called Unhindered, which is the name of my my main book, um, Unhindered, The Seven Essential Practices for Overcoming Insecurity. So, yeah, I think I'm fairly easy to find. Okay, where did they get the book? Well, it is available on Amazon. Okay, uh, it's on Audible. Um, if you're if you're in the US, then it might be easier to get it off Amazon. But we ship internationally. If you get it off my website too, I manage distribution for that book in Australia, and you know, we ship all around the world. So yeah, we have found well. we found with my book that if if they want to buy it in the US, it's better to get it from us. But if it's they want to get it overseas, it's better to get it off Amazon. Otherwise, that the, yep. the shipping cost the postage is horrendous. Sometimes they're more than the book itself. Yeah, we definitely we've we've found that. So, okay, so jaminfraser.com, dot com, the uh, the podcast. How many episodes have you done? Uh, I think it's two hundred and seventy five. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, and I think I've it's taken me a while to find my voice and to find the theme, but I I love that that podcast and that community. I. I've introduced music background to my podcast and it kind of fits into the more spiritual teacher kind of role. And so it started out as 10-minute episodes, 10-minute Tuesday, which was what I did for years. Um, I like the idea of saying it as simply as possible and as short as possible rather than adding to the noise. But over the years, they've lengthened as I've uh, yeah found my, my flow and style. Sometimes I have guests, not very often. Sometimes I have coaching demonstrations, not very often, but mainly it's uh, me just spitting out some content that I've thought is interesting and sharing my journey. Okay, I've just got on your website here and I'm looking at the podcast page. <laughs> one of these podcasts is called, one of the episodes is called Tyler Durden and the Queen. So Tyler Durden was the character <laughs> that Brad Pitt played in... Fight Club, Tyler Durden and the Queen. What else have we got here? We've got Doing the Impossible <laughs> with a picture of a flying pig. We have Matthew Perry and the subject-object switch. That would be good. Oh, Jordan Peterson and the three levels of awareness. So a few years ago, my son and I went to uh, Mongolia in the dead of winter and rode camels 300 kilometres across the Gobi Desert, staying with the nomads in their oh, wow. gurs at night time. And there was a group of us, there was maybe 16 of us or something, and so you're riding along beside people on camels all day long, chatting away, and about the second day, I think, this uh, lady who lives in America, but she's Canadian, she rides up beside me and she said, uh, you know, she'd heard some of the conversations I was having, and, and she said, uh, you ever heard of Jordan Peterson? And I said, you know what, I've heard of him, but I've never read any of his stuff or watched any of his stuff, but his name has popped up a few times, and now here I am in the middle of Mongolia, and his name pops up, so I better... I better check him out. She goes, okay. Anyway, a couple of nights later, her and her friend were in the, the girl, the tent at night time, and I heard him chatting about um, Jordan, like first name basis type, Jordan, Jordan this, Jordan that. So I said to her, 
Are you talking about Jordan Peterson? She said, yeah. I said, do you know him? She goes, yeah, he's my brother. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, the, the strange yeah, well, places I, you run into people. I don't know if you listed his interview on Joe Rogan six weeks ago or so, but um, just such an extraordinary conversation. And he, he is a target on his back. He kind of says some provocative things and he goes hard at some at some sacred subjects, but I, I think he's one of the smartest men in the world and just uh, such an important voice. I'll have to have a listen to that one. My wife listens to, to Joe Rogan all the time and uh, I usually listen to, you know, when I've got time like that, I'll usually listen to audio books because like, I've okay. got a whole list of them, like got all these books I've got to listen to and, and, yeah, I probably should have a listen to a few of Joe's. Okay, so... JamonFraser.com, all the stuff is on there. The books, you can get them also on uh, Amazon and the podcast you can get on Spotify, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. Have we covered all the bases? I'm sure we have. I'm sure we have. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I, I can't believe someone of your uh, talent and passion and what you're doing lives in a small country town of Goulburn. Wow. <laughs> you got to live somewhere, right? But I was just in the States uh, two weeks ago with, with my son, got a, a couple of speaking events, and then we're in Guatemala where my brother and his family are, are there running an orphanage. But I, you know, flying over the US, I just, I know I'm a global citizen and that, um, uh, but you got to live somewhere, and Goldman is a beautiful place to live, and I like it. So. It used to be that I thought I would live and die in Goulburn and I am a Goulburnite and I tied my identity being here and that was certainly an agreement that I had to, to update as I've advanced in the work that I'm doing. So now you choose to be there. You don't have to be there. Of course, absolutely. Yep. Well, I think you're doing wonderful things in the world and I'm so glad your daughter uh, suggested that I have you on the podcast because I, I learned a lot and it was fascinating chatting with you. You asked some great questions. That was a beautiful conversation. So, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a real treat. Yeah, I'm sure one of these days we'll uh, we'll have to catch up when I'm back in Young visiting the oldies. I'll, um, have, I've got to drive Absolutely. to Goulburn to get home from the airport, so I might have to catch up one day. I'll have to do it when the Golden Bulldogs play the Young Cherry Pickers at the, uh, the Workers' Arena or in Young. Are they in the same group now? They are in the same group, yep. Really? They never used to be. Yep. Young Women's no, Group right. 9, and what were, what was Goulburn used to be? I'm not sure, but there's been a few players uh, that have gone from Goulburn to play in Young, and now, yeah, now they're back in, this, in the same group. Hmm. Awesome stuff. Righto. Well, thanks again. Um, it was wonderful <laughs> chatting with you and a few guys at home. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Journey On Podcast. Thanks for being a part of the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.